3: First
2: degree. first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. You see it on the news. You see it on the paper. You see it on Facebook. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life.
0: I was walking my dog outside, and I see all these ambulances and fire trucks, and when I say they were flying, I've never seen them drive that fast, ever. And I stopped what I was doing, I was like, Lord, please don't let that be somebody I know. I was on Facebook, and then I just saw like somebody say, rest in peace, blah, 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 and I was like, what? Then I started looking, and then I was literally, I had to go throw up. He had done similar things to eight other people. What about the people that are still too scared? To even say anything, there could be more people. Sooner or later, something bad was going to happen, and it did.
2: Welcome to the first degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Viannek. I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter looking like Steve Jobs yet again. She is ready to go. I promise I have more than one black turtleneck. I promise I've got like a whole
1: closet full of them.
2: I know, but it, but also it's like the Steve Jobs way. Like, I feel like that really works for your personality is just to like have the uniform. She's ready to go. I like it.
1: I gotta say, Monday through Friday, this kind of is the uniform. I have a couple in navy too, and a couple like different textures. Color. Yeah, a little color. A pop of color. I definitely don't do this on my like fun nights. I like I
2: love fashion fashion. Well, before we start today's episode, I just want to remind everybody to join our Patreon. If you are looking for bonus content, we have one full episode true crime story every single week for you over there. So, if you're like me and you are just dying for a good true crime podcast because there are none out there's a lot out there, but there's no good ones. Please join us on our Patreon.
1: There's a couple good ones, but we're already listening to all of those and, and binge them, you know. So, I know the ones that are my favorites, when they do offer extra content, extra episodes, I take them up on it because I'm like, listen, you can't put a price on entertainment.
2: That's that's exactly right. Well, passive listening, you know? I know. I love a passive listen. It's the best. Um, all right. Well, uh, I think that's enough of that. So let's turn in the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you.
1: There's a lot going on in today's modern world for us to worry about, unfortunately. If something's not quite right with our health, for example, it's easy to jump to conclusions, especially when you can WebMD diagnose yourself and spiral into thinking you have a terminal illness at the drop of a hat. Of course, on most occasions, this isn't the case at all, and a quick trip to the doctor can usually put those fears to rest. But what happens when we are privately feeling so conflicted by warning signs, be it with our health Or perhaps the behavior of other people around us, as another example, that we say nothing. Just as it's human nature for us to immediately think the worst, on the other hand, we want to think positively when it comes to our interactions with others, especially those who are intertwined in our daily lives. We also don't want to seem like an alarmist, or be seen as dramatic, but if someone is behaving in a way we find disturbing. How can we discern the difference between the need to say something and when to ignore something that might be a one-off? How are we supposed to know the right
2: move to make? And can you ever really know at all? So we begin today's case on November 4th of 2021, and in a terrifying statistic in one day... Almost 1,900 people died from COVID, pushing the country's official death toll to over 750,000 people. In New York, the Supreme Court heard arguments reviewing the state law imposing strict limits on carrying guns outside the home, which required people seeking a license to carry a gun in public to show proper cause. In the world of pop music, Adele was number one with her hit Easy on Me, followed by Kid Leroy and Justin Bieber with Stay. And in theaters, people were seeing Dune, which is one of Jared's favorite movies of all time, and also No Time to Die, a James Bond film starring Daniel Craig. And the setting for today's story
1: is Yadkinville, North Carolina. Situated in the northwest of the state in Yadkin County, the rural town of around 2,800 people is located about 75 miles north of Charlotte. Part of the Piedmont-Triad metropolitan region, Yadkinville was originally a farming community where flue-crude tobacco is the major crop. And back in 1850, when the town was chosen as the county seat, there was just one house in town. But these days, the Yadkinville area thrives thanks to its annual Harvest Festival in September, followed by the annual Grape Festival in October, attracting wine lovers from all over to sample the best of North Carolina's viticulture. Our first degree for today's case is named Whitley, a great name, by the way. And Whitley also lives in Yadkinville. And several years ago, through her local church, Whitley became friendly with a family named the Smithermans.
0: So our church is really small, but it's not in a traditional church like it used to be an old gym back in the day. We did the whole inside and it's a lot of worship music, stuff like that. It's geared towards kids. In our county alone, we only have two high schools and they're small high schools, so just not a lot going on. But church, just anytime anything would happen, it was like everybody would come together.
2: So the Smithermans had three teen daughters, including a set of fraternal twins named Nora and Anna. They both attended Forbush High School. And the whole family was deeply devoted to their Christian faith and the ministry, especially Nora. She volunteered through the church, participated in mentoring children, and babysat every Wednesday evening for the church community group. I was working the front desk doing check-in during COVID times. You had to sign up because
0: we could only have so many people in the church. So I did the check-in, and then Nora and Anna would seat people. So they would stand up there with me every morning, Sundays and stuff.
2: So Nora was a straight-A student and a really, really high achiever. Only months into her senior year, she was academically ranked third out of her class of 192 students, which is so impressive, and on track to graduate summa cum laude. Possible scholarships to Davidson College and UNC in Charlotte were also on the cards, with Nora considering a few avenues, including business administration, education, or something medical-related, focused on working with children and teens.
1: Nora was also a committed member of her high school softball and volleyball teams, as well as the Beta Club, and was the treasurer of HOSA, which stood for Health Occupation Students of America. Nora was obviously well-rounded and actively participated in numerous fundraising
2: initiatives, including regular blood drives. And one thing that Nora always looked forward to every year was her family's annual summer beach vacation. The beach was Nora's happy place. She's a girl after my own heart. It's also my happy place. I love it so much. And she relished in every minute of this special time with her family, finding spiritual peace in the surf and the sand. It sounds amazing.
1: Truly. But more than anything, Nora was selfless, she was kind, and she was bubbly, which endeared her to everyone around her. Family, God, and school were the three most important things in Nora's life. Plus, she was lovingly obsessed with her puppy, Leo, as well. And she also shared a special bond with her twin sister, Anna.
0: I remember Nora saying that there were some mornings they would come out of their rooms and they would be wearing the exact same thing without planning it. They had the twin brain going on. I thought that was kind of cute.
2: The common through line in Nora's approach to life was her drive to help people by giving back to the community and always giving 100% to the activities that she was involved in. Nora had been the target of bullying in elementary school, so she knew how it felt to be excluded, and she didn't want anybody else to feel the same way that she did.
0: Nora was just pure, like had the best heart, wanted to help everybody, the outgoing. She was nice to everybody, super sweet. And she walked the walk, talked the talk, like She's just such a good person. They were both in the top of their class.
1: Just great girls. Just good family. By the time Nora was in her senior year, she was also a member of the National Honor Society, Student Council, and Fellowship of Christian Students. I mean, she's making me look like a degenerate in high school.
2: Oh, my God, yeah.
1: With all these extracurriculars. And we are looking at some pictures of Nora. And one, she's throwing a volleyball. She's holding a puppy. I can only imagine that's probably Leo. She has a really dazzling smile, and just she looks just like a sincere, loving person. Yeah, she looks super sweet.
2: In the fall of 2021, Whitley saw Nora a few days after Halloween, when it was Whitley's turn to host a church community group at her house. And as Nora usually did, she came over to babysit.
0: What we do is we go over discussion questions from a sermon from the previous Sunday. We basically do like potluck. We have different themes of food or whatever, and we take the food in. Everybody eats. The kids get their food, and they would go in the basement with the babysitters so we could have, you know, discussions.
1: So we would do that, and I even remember how her hair was that night. It was in a braid. At the end of that same week, Whitley started seeing posts on social media, and they caught her attention because they mentioned Nora, and they weren't good. In fact, they were pretty alarming but Whitley was only getting information kind of in bits and pieces, which made it really difficult to discern exactly what was going on.
0: I was in graduate school at the time and I had a clinical about 45 minutes away from my home. And I'd gotten there and was on Facebook and then I just saw like somebody say, rest in peace, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, what? So then I started looking and I figured out that she had died. And then I was, Literally, I had to go throw up. I didn't know what had happened.
2: I'd just seen her the night before. Whitley started thinking back to the last time that she saw Nora only a few days before. So I went home. And then a few hours later, I
0: had a friend of mine messaged me. And here I am thinking like, oh, it was a car accident or something. Because that Thursday night, I was walking my dog outside and I see all these ambulances and fire trucks. And when I say they were flying, I've never seen them drive that fast, ever. And I stopped what I was doing. I was like, Lord, please don't let that be somebody I know.
2: But it wasn't a car accident. And when the story about Nora's death officially broke in the local news, the unthinkable had happened. Nora had been shot and killed. And Whitley was obviously stunned. And then the next morning when I found that out.
0: A friend of mine told me that she had been shot. I'm like, I, I don't, that makes no sense. Who
1: would shoot her? Like, what? Whitley was emotionally knocked sideways. How could this have happened to Nora? What were the circumstances? And who was holding the gun? To answer all these questions, you know the drill. We gotta go back. Our first-degree Whitley had just learned of the sudden shooting death of 17-year-old Nora Smitherman, who Whitley knew through church. The entire community was reeling, especially Whitley, who couldn't believe something so horrific had happened to someone so gentle, unassuming, and kind Whitley never, ever thought Nora would come to harm, let alone in such a violent
2: manner. Whitley eventually learned that on the evening of November 4th, Nora had been out visiting her friend from school, a 17-year-old guy named Jace Allen. So Jace had invited Nora and another mutual friend, who we're going to call Aaron, that's not his real name, over to help him with something at his house. So Jace was expecting some friends over the following evening, but he said he needed help to clean his room, which was actually in the basement, because he wanted to make things look presentable enough to have some people over.
1: So Nora, Jace, and Aaron were all very close, so it was nothing for Nora to go over and help out when Jace asked her to. That evening, Nora did some laundry before telling her mom that she'd be home from Jace's by around 9.30 p.m. The next day, cap and gown pictures were being taken at school, and Nora wanted to straighten her hair, so she'd be back. But when Nora wasn't back by the specified time and failed to answer her phone, her dad drove over to Jace's around 11 p.m. to see what was going on. And when he arrived, he was met with a scene no parent should ever have to witness. First responders were already parked in the driveway. And it was then that the police gave her father,
2: Rodney, the awful news. Nora had been shot and killed. So what had happened? How had Nora gotten shot, of all things? So naturally, the police turned to Jace for answers. And he told them that Nora had been sitting on the couch when a twenty-two caliber revolver that had been laying on the top of the fireplace suddenly fell to the floor and discharged. This is a tragic, tragic accident. And Nora was shot in the head and killed instantly. Jace immediately ran for his mom, who was not only home, but who was also a nurse. And they called 911 just after 8 p.m.
0: Things started coming out that it was an accident, that a, the
1: gun had fell off a shelf and fired. After Nora was killed, Jace and his mother met with Nora's family and had explained how the accident happened. And in a move that was tremendously compassionate and speaks to the kind of family that Nora has, in the days that followed, although she was gutted with grief, Nora's mom invited Jace to church, given that he too needed support during this difficult time, especially since he was kind of at the center of this entire thing. Nora's mom, Jennifer, had compassion for Jace and believed he was grief and guilt-stricken over what had happened. So Jace agreed to go to church with Nora's mom. In fact, Whitley remembers seeing Jace there with them. She's under the premise that it was a complete accident. And she invites him to church that
0: next Sunday. That's how good of a person she is. Like, she was being there for him. So I see everybody coming in, and he was with her family. His head wasn't up real high, I can tell you that.
1: Visit the realreal.com and use code first at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. Nora Smitherman's school community was rocked by the sudden loss of Nora, someone so vibrant who had their entire life ahead of them. So at their next football game, 2 days after Nora
2: had died, a memorial service was held in her honor. Clouds of purple balloons, which were Nora's favorite color, were released at dusk against the backdrop of a purple sunset. The hundreds of people attending, including the opposing team, turned out wearing purple and observed a moment of silence and prayer. To remember Nora, her friends also painted her parking spot in the student
1: parking lot purple. And they also painted a rock that was out front of the school. They painted that purple, too, and marked writing all over it, you know, Saying on this rock in memory of Nora and all these really sweet things.
2: But as more details slowly emerged about the shooting, something just wasn't adding up. It was becoming clear that something was very wrong with Jace's version of the events, and everything kind of just started to unravel from there. And to find out how the real story of what happened uncovered, we got to go back one more time. <laughs> Jace Braxton Allen was born on April 2nd,
1: 2004, an only child to his parents. At some point during Jace's childhood, his parents split up, with Jace and his mom living in Yadkinville, and Jace's dad about
2: a half hour away in the town of Harmony. And sadly, Jace lost his dad in October of 2020 following a car accident when Jace was only 16 years old. But Jace continued attending school with Nora and Anna and was expected to graduate with their class in 2022.
1: In the days following Nora's death, her family was preparing to say their farewells. But the autopsy results came back, and there was a problem.
2: They conflicted with Jace's account of what had happened. The nature of Nora's head wound on the right side of her forehead was fired from what's called an intermediate range and had tracked at a certain angle. But the wound wasn't consistent with Nora having been shot in the head while seated across the room if the gun had discharged after falling to the floor as Jace described. And even the funeral home had told Nora's mom, Jennifer, that the location of the entry
1: wound didn't jive with Jace's version of events. Nora's mother eventually realized that the story of an accident was a lie.
0: You don't hit someone in the forehead with a gun falling off a shelf. He lied to her family, lied to the cops, lied to the pastors, lied to everyone. There was no way that's how it happened. And that's when things kind of just, I think they took off from there. I thought it was strange that a gun falls off of a cabinet and goes off and manages to hit someone in the head. It didn't add up to me. It didn't add up to a lot of people. Obviously, I didn't want to think he did it on purpose, but I didn't believe that story. I don't think a lot of people believed it. You don't have to know a lot about guns to know that that trajectory does not happen from a gun falling off a shelf on the ground. Like It just doesn't happen. I think the story changed then to Oh, the gun was in his hoodie and it fell out of his hoodie. It just kept morphing and it was never anywhere near the truth. The SBI was already investigating, but he just kept telling story after story. Nobody was getting the truth.
2: At the same time, people in the community were also talking about Jace's behavior in the lead up to Nora's death. Several days before she died, Nora showed her mom some Snapchat messages from Jace where he said that he was done with Nora.
1: So while that's weird, despite feeling hurt, Nora still felt compelled to go help Jace out on the Thursday night with their other friend, Aaron, to help Jace get ready for this party he was having at his house. Nora knew that Jace had been struggling a bit, and she even told her mom, if I don't go, he won't have anyone
2: else. But even before that, in the weeks before Nora died, Jace had also been threatening Anna, who was Nora's fraternal twin, who up until recently had been part of Jace and Nora's bigger friend group.
0: He put a shotgun to her stomach one time, and then he pulled a knife on her neck at a different time.
2: What Whitley said is true. And during the incident with a gun, Jace had pointed an unloaded shotgun at her stomach, pulling the trigger while laughing and saying, see, I told you it wasn't loaded.
1: So Nora's sister Anna had confided in Nora about what Jace had done with the gun, this disturbing behavior. But she didn't tell anyone else probably because she didn't want to provoke Jace any further. You know, it's what we were talking about at the top of this episode. People not wanting to be an alarmist or make something seem like a bigger deal than it is. Like, go run and tattle on- to your parent and then have everyone at school be like, why did you do that? It was just a joke, you know? Um, obviously, when guns are involved, this is something terrifying, and we should always be like, whoa, I'm flagging this. This is unsafe and uncool. But we're dealing with high school kids. They don't necessarily have the maturity to understand that yet.
2: Right. And Anna was still going to the same school as Jace. She had to see him every day. So obviously she was scared. She knew he had a gun, the same 22 caliber revolver. And he clearly had access to this shotgun as well. So hoping
1: it was just an empty threat designed to intimidate, Anna had kept the information between just her and Nora. She told Nora and that's it. But now with her sister dead and Jace having pulled the trigger. She told her family how she'd been in fear of something like this happening to her. She never told anyone until after,
0: bless her heart, she was carrying that around. Nora knew, and she still wanted to try to help him and be his friend, because she knew he was depressed and lonely, and she wanted, she was worried that if she didn't go over there to his house, that he wouldn't have anybody to help him. She said, like, if I don't
2: go, nobody will go. She was just being a good person. But Anna wasn't the only person that Jace had threatened. The North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation obtained statements from other victims who Jace threatened prior to Nora's death. He had done similar
0: things to eight other people. It is absolutely scary. And it wasn't just females he did this to. He did this to guys, too. And for it to be as a joke or whatever he said it was, like, oh, I was just being funny, blah, blah, blah. You don't do that to that many people, and it's just a joke. You don't do that anyway and make it a joke. It's not a joke. But to do it that many times, it had to go wrong eventually, right? And the fact that she was carrying that around, that burden of knowing that he had done that to her and other people, breaks my heart that she had to feel that when she talked to the SBI. If she wouldn't have said those things, I don't think other people would have spoke up. I think the people he did it to were terrified to tell anybody. They were scared of him. They had to have been. Even if it was under the pretense of him joking with them, you can't tell me if somebody did that to you, you still wouldn't be scared of them.
1: Whitley was at a loss, as are we, to try to explain why anyone would threaten people with violence and pass it off as a joke. Because eventually, it becomes a numbers game and a pattern of recklessness, especially when said recklessness intersects with impulsivity and what seems to be a morbid fascination with violence or possibly hurting someone. The more someone says something, the more truth there is in it, in their intentions, not less.
0: How could someone get that screwed up in the head to start doing that is my question. Another thing I thought, I was like, you know, these are the people that came forward or talked to the FBI or whoever and said that he had done these things to them as well. What about the people that are still too scared to even say anything? There could be more people. Who's to say this was it? But it seems odd that it was all these people in a super short amount of time. Like, it escalated. Like, he was doing those things. Sooner or later, something bad was going to happen, and it did.
1: Once it became clear that Nora's death was no accident, the questions were even more glaring. Why Nora? Did Jace know the gun was loaded? What motivated Nora's shooting? Naturally, learning that Jace had lied added a whole new layer of grief to what Nora's family was already going through.
2: And now knowing the entire story, Nora's mom blamed herself for having invited her daughter's killer into her own place of spiritual refuge, her church.
0: He shows up with her family and sits with him at church on Sunday, knowing what he did. And Jennifer, bless her heart, she's like, it's my fault I invited him, how could I have done that? I'm like, you didn't know. You'd see the good in people. You didn't want to think somebody was capable of doing that to your daughter. That has nothing to do with you. He should
2: have said no. Five days after Nora died, Jace was charged with second degree murder and denied bond. It was soon determined that he'd be tried as an adult. Nora's family hoped the evidence about Jace's disturbing behavior leading up to Nora's killing would provide enough of an aggravating factor to have him convicted of murder.
0: Just the fact that they changed it, they had to have known something at that point. And I was like, well, obviously he did this on purpose, or at least it didn't go down like he said it did. No one that's the responsible gun owner. Ever unloaded or loaded, points a gun at someone unless they intend to kill. You don't do that. We're from a small town, a lot of people own guns here. Like, he knew better. And the fact that he was 17 and had access to that gun is also a little frightening. I would never have a gun and have it loaded unless I planned on using it. Even at 17, like, you shouldn't have a gun, but I feel like you should know if it's loaded or not, especially if it's in your possession, in your room, or wherever he was in the basement. He had it on him. It was his. And you remember loading a gun. You don't forget that you load a gun.
1: Like many people, Whitley was also at a loss to understand why Jace's mom also wasn't held accountable in some way over the fact that her son had access to unsecured firearms in the home that led to such an egregious, tragic murder, essentially.
0: There should have been some accountability there because there have been other cases I've seen in the U.S. where... A kid goes and does something, they're underage, and the parents charge, right? That's been done. I don't know why that wasn't done in this situation. I think a lot of people felt that way, that something should have been done. She should have been accountable because he was not an adult. The gun was in her house. She knew it was there. A lot of people felt that way.
2: Of course, because Jace was a minor at this time, while everything was kind of playing out, very little information was publicly available, and his name wasn't even being published. The only information being publicly shared came out in bits and pieces on social media.
0: Him being a minor, nothing was really in the news, couldn't find a whole lot. I knew there were like court hearings and stuff because Jennifer would post on Facebook, it's going to be a hard week, pray for me. So he kind of knew like there was court stuff going on, but she never could really talk about it.
1: In the lead-up to the 18-year-old Jace Braxton's murder trial, the prosecution was ready. It had obtained over 100 pieces of compelling evidence proving that Nora's death was indeed a homicide and not an accident. But Nora's family was about to receive some shocking and painful news.
2: So under Rule 404B of the North Carolina Criminal Code, none of the evidence relating to Jace's previous threats against Anna or anybody else for that matter would be admissible in court. So this meant that the jury would never get to hear about any of it. The law states that evidence of other crimes, wrongs, or acts is not admissible to prove the character of a person. This law is designed to make sure somebody is only tried on the events directly connected to a crime. So this was a crushing development for this case, especially because Jace's prior behavior clearly
1: indicated that he had a pattern of doing this, which also spoke to a level of general intent. Nora's family wasn't even wanting historical evidence admitted from way back in Jace's childhood. They only wanted things that happened recently. And Jace's threats to other people that he'd made were very, very recent. So they did seem relevant.
0: Previous behavior being admissible, I know that's like a big deal. Like, you can't bring up other stuff that they've done. But all they wanted was the 90 days prior to her death. Like, that's all they wanted to be admitted, and the judge wouldn't do it. So it wasn't like they were asking him for, you know, years past, like some random stuff. They wanted the 90 days prior to her death with the jury not knowing that he had done that to other people. Jennifer was like, they had no clue. Once they found out after the fact, they're probably having a hard time with that. If just even one of those people could have spoken, if they would have just allowed one other person to speak, that would have made a world of difference. But no one was allowed to.
2: If evidence of Jace's previous threats against other people was now off the table, the prosecution's case would be in peril, really. How could they win at trial without that evidence? This meant that a murder conviction was now off the table and the state believed that manslaughter was the best that they could do. Nora's family and the community and everybody was horrified to learn the reality of the situation. I was
0: disgusted. (laughs) It came down to not being able to prove intent because he admitted to pulling the hammer back and pointing at her their head. He admitted to that. He says he doesn't remember pulling the trigger, but he did admit that he had the gun in his hand and he did that.
1: At Jace's trial, which had been moved over to a neighboring county, he pleaded not guilty. The court heard about text messages sent between Jace, Nora, and Aaron, where the trio told each other that they loved each other and they checked to make sure the others had arrived home safely after previous times they'd hung
2: out together. And in one previous message from Nora to Jace, she said, Miss you, bestie. Another text from Jace to Aaron and Nora said, Y'all will never know how grateful I am to have you. Y'all are my family lifelong. And the prosecution called forensics experts to give evidence, along with Nora's dad, Aaron, and a ballistics expert.
1: Jace, who was the only defense witness, took the stand. And he told the court that while his actions caused Nora's death, it was nothing more than a terrible accident, given the lack of
2: intent. On the stand, Jace stated that on the night that Nora died, Aaron was sitting on Jace's bed and Nora was on the couch, where Jace's gun was also sitting. Jace testified that he picked up the gun, cocked it with his left hand, like in a Western movie, and proceeded to play around with the weapon, which was pointed at Nora. Jace claimed that he couldn't
1: remember pulling the trigger, but the next thing he knew, a flash came out of the end of the gun barrel,
2: and he could hear the ringing sound of a gunshot. Jace told the court that he thought that the gun was unloaded, which it always was when it wasn't in use. Even though he didn't check beforehand, he went on to say that he initially lied to police because he was scared they wouldn't believe him. Adding, "I couldn't accept I'd just taken my best friend's life," and Jace was adamant that he would have never played around with that gun the way that he did if he thought that it was loaded.
1: On March 17th of 2023, Jace was convicted of involuntary manslaughter. He was sentenced to the maximum of two years and nine months in jail, but he'd already served 77 days, so he was credited for that.
2: It was the maximum term, but still cold comfort to Nora's grieving family. Nora's parents gave emotional victim impact statements, and they told the court that they couldn't believe that Jace and his mom perpetuated these lies about what happened to all of their faces in their own home. Nora's father
1: asked Jace,
2: how do you love someone and point a gun at them?
1: I cherish the last words she ever said to me. I love you, Daddy. My daughter never had a chance to plead for mercy. Nora's mom added that based on the threats Jace made against Anna, she felt Jace had only told the partial truth about what had occurred.
2: And like many people, Whitley is appalled at the gap in the North Carolina justice system that allowed Jace to get away with murder.
0: This makes you sick. She's literally gone forever and he gets to spend a couple years at that in jail Gets to have his birthdays, gets to do all these things, gets to get out and continue his life. And it just doesn't seem fair. And if you're going to do something like that one time, who's to say he wouldn't do it again? It's
1: just scary. Understandably, Nora's family endures a tidal wave of pain every day in this life altering nightmare. Not least of all, her twin sister, Anna.
0: This child is like wise beyond her years. Emotionally, like she's so sweet and so strong. Like every time I see her, she's smiling. I mean, she lost her other half. Like, it's not just a sister. That was her twin. It's hard seeing her and not seeing Nora with her. Like, it took a while to, just in my head, rationalize. This is the new normal. This is how I'm going to see her. I'm not going to see her with a sister. It's just going to be her. I can't imagine how she feels.
2: Nora's mom made it her life mission to change the law in North Carolina. Unfortunately, her proposed changes to Rule 404B didn't pass the General Assembly, but her campaigning has resulted in Senate Bill 303, which now says that 16- and 17-year-olds who commit high-level felonies will be charged as adults.
0: Now they're pushing towards something different. They're trying to get a law passed called Nora's Law. It's passed the uh, state Senate and the House, so now they're getting ready to do joint and then take it to the governor. And it's basically, if you're 16 or 17 up until your 18th birthday, if you commit a class A through F felony, you automatically get tried as an adult. And that's what they're working towards.
1: Nora's family, especially her mother, have been working hard not just to change the law, but to honor Nora's memory and find some meaning in the pain that followed the loss of their daughter. The result is the Live Like Nora Foundation, which holds fundraising events, including an annual golf tournament and also has its very own storefront in town, selling merchandise to raise money for charity. The foundation has also funded several scholarships for local schools.
0: She started a foundation maybe two weeks after Nora passed away. She was like on the ball, raising money, scholarships, stuff like that. I think that was her outlet and her way of spreading Nora's light, honestly, was just doing something in her memory, and and she did that. She's done an awesome job. She has a storefront now, which is where I went and saw her the other day. She's gone on the news. She's gone to Raleigh to fight for Nora's Law. They're getting ready to have a golf tournament soon.
2: And there's a really lovely story behind the foundation's motto, God Not Dead. And this is featured on a lot of their merchandise.
0: There was a picture of her when she was really little on the beach. And it's the cutest thing ever. She's like sitting with her legs out in front of her, like touching a seashell or something. And She had it in her room, and they wanted to use that at the funeral. Well, they take it off the wall, and they turn it around, and in purple crayon, it says God not dead. Now, she was young when she wrote it. Obviously, the S on the end of God wasn't there, but still, it was her handwriting that said God not dead. They took a lot of her actual handwriting, and they made shirts and sweatshirts and all these things. And it's like a Christian-based store. She's got books and jewelry and just all sorts of things. It's a cute little store. it's her way of keeping her her light going. I think it probably makes her feel close to Nora too. She's doing all these things in her memory, and in her honor, it's what drives her now. I'm sure there's days where she can't get out of bed. you know there's gotta be. I have no clue what that even feels like. I don't ever wanna know what that feels like, but so she's a very strong lady. I know she probably wouldn't think so. <laughs> Everybody can put on a front and when they're going through stuff, but I do genuinely think she is a very strong person a lot of people this would have literally killed them I think
2: of course like anybody who has lost a child the pain evident in Nora's mom Jennifer's social media is palpable in one recent post she said I'm working through my thoughts and my grief please don't preach to me about forgiveness don't DM me about it I'm walking and working through the enormous grief and trauma forgiveness will occur when God shows me the path and my mind is lighter I know me meet me where I am not where you think I should be
1: 19-year-old Jace is expected to be released in late August of 2024, despite his history of threatening people with gun violence. That's just less than a year away. Unlike Nora, though, he still has his whole life ahead of him. She didn't get to go to prom, she didn't get to graduate,
0: like, just so much stuff. Her whole life gone in an instant. Him being in jail for that amount of time, like, now that we know what all else happened, it just doesn't fit the crime. It just doesn't make sense to me, and it never will. I don't think it's going to make sense, ever.
2: Whitley told us about how this experience has changed her perspective on life and on people. It's brought the important things in life into sharp focus.
0: I had a bone marrow transplant years ago, and I have felt what it is to like know life was short. I knew that, but seeing this happen to someone that young... I'd been thinking about getting baptized for a while. Like I'd really thought about it, thought about it, kept putting it off. I don't like being in front of people, which is how I am. And after that, I was like, you know what? This is it, I'm doing it. I'm gonna get this done because I've I've been wanting to, and this is like my final push. She's the reason. And this whole podcast is because I want people to know who she was and how awesome she was. That's so important. Getting the wall passed would be awesome, but like she deserves to be known. Her story deserves to be heard. She would want something good to come of this. Like, she was just that kind of person.
1: Before Nora died, she wrote to her volleyball teammates, "'Your hardest times often lead "'to the greatest moments of your life. "'Keep going. "'Tough situations build strong people in the end.'" These are words her family continue to live by today in honoring her spirit. Nora's kindness and humility in helping others makes her death all the more cruel, given she was doing something for someone she thought was her friend. And the law should have been there to ensure the punishment fit the crime, but it wasn't. And while it's desperately sad that Nora's family have had to be the ones to take on the fight to right this legal wrong, their courage and resilience is also a testament to who they are as a family and the young woman they raised who had only amazing things laying ahead of her.
2: Well, a huge thank you to Whitley for sharing her story today. If you have a story to, to tell, please email us hello at the first Follow us on Instagram. Join our Facebook group. We're talking true crime all the time. Join our Patreon if you're looking for more true crime content. Instagram because we'll have a brand new episode of Killing Time right in your feed tomorrow. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers. And keep your
1: friends close. But not that close. Shout out to Jared Monica for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, writing and research by Gemma Harris. Sources for this episode are the Yadkin Ripple, the Stokes News, CBS 17, Fox 8, WFMY, News S2, the Charlotte Observer, the Winston-Salem Journal, the Ash Post and Times, the North Carolina Department of Adult Correction, and LiveLikeNora.org. And as always, our first three guests is always our largest source.